Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey bitches, before we dive into today's episode, just a quick note to let you know that it contains references to suicide. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, it's really important to get help, and luckily there are lots of resources out there. One of them is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You can dial 988 24 hours a day to talk to a representative. You can also text hello to 741-741. This field messages about suicidal thoughts, abuse, sexual assault, depression, anxiety, bullying, and more. It's important to get help. Your life is worth it. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hi, Michael. Hi, Carla. How you doing, girl? I'm doing good. I had a great holiday with my family. We did all the food. I might be wearing sweatpants for the next two weeks. <laughs> same, girl. Same. <laughs> you don't see me in the office. You know why. I can't bend to no clothes. <laughs> we did, like I said last week, we did a vegetarian lasagna, but you best believe that I found an excuse over the weekend to bake me some biscuits, and I might have carved it up. So I love that. Well, we are definitely Southern. And I'm married to a very Southern man who has sisters, and they know how to cook so well. Banana pudding, like all all the things. Do you guys do multiple Thanksgivings? No. We do one Thanksgiving. Luckily, both my family and my husband's family get along really well, actually. Oh, Um, dang. Get it, girl. Yeah. So, like, not only do they mesh well, like, they don't mind meshing well. We have his family and my family, and they just mesh. So, we do Thanksgivings together. Well, I'm glad that you had... An incredible holiday. I'm also glad that we have you back. What are you helping us dive into today, Carla? Okay, so I was obsessed with this story when it first came out. First time I heard about it, there's an HBO documentary. The title like just blows you away. It's called I Love You, Now Die. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, so the story is about Michelle Carter, who's a teenager, and Conrad Roy, who's also a teenager. And the way the documentary lays it out is it kind of tells you the prosecution side of this trial and then the defense side of the trial. And I'm going to tell you that like, by the time you're done watching the first episode, you are just... you you. You're incensed, really. Like you just can you are fully bought into what the prosecution is laying down. And there you honestly, like I can remember being like, there's nothing to come back from this. And the second half of it is the defense. And then all of a sudden you're like, nothing in the world makes sense. But actually all of it makes sense. And you walk away with a complete different reaction than you had. And honestly, you realize that no one won in this case. Unfortunately, like some of the other cases, there are no winners here. They are, everyone is a loser here. Yeah. And so they're just recently Hulu, I think it was last year, did a series on this and it's very good. It's called A Girl from Plainville. If you've watched A Girl from Plainville, I would tell you, go back and watch the HBO documentary. But we're going to talk a lot about kind of stuff that the HBO documentary covered. I want to make sure I talk about it, but that definitely deep dives into it. There's some really good journalism, some really good investigation pieces. You see a lot of the trial and a lot of the media. You also get to hear from his family. And I think that's so important that we get to hear from Conrad's family. Trigger warning for everyone at the top of this. As Carla mentioned, this episode is going to have lots of references to suicide, which I know can be a very, very sensitive subject. And in general, 
mental illness, which we're also going to talk a lot about, can be triggering for some people. So just know that at the top of this episode, especially if you've got little ones around and don't want to explain to little Johnny what suicide means, maybe wait this one out until you can sit down by yourself. But grab a glass of wine or whatever your beverage of choice is. I've got a little beer next to me tonight. And let's uh, settle in as Carla takes us down the story of Michelle Carter. So let's talk about the day in question. His mom, Lynn Roy, would describe July 12th as knowing that something was wrong because Conrad had not shown up. She notified the police right away and reported him missing. His father, Conrad Sr., was notified that his son's truck was seen at the back of the Kmart parking lot. He immediately, with his father, drove over to where the vehicle was. There, he would be notified that his son, Conrad Roy, was in the car deceased from carbon monoxide poisoning in an apparent suicide. God, can you imagine getting that call, Carla? No, I I don't even have kids, and that makes me, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. I I cannot even imagine, and just, it's a small area, too. They're in Massachusetts. A lot of people knew each other, so immediately his mom kind of shares some of her reactions to it and that she just was so overwhelmed by the thought that she actually didn't even go there to the parking lot. Because a lot of people were like, oh, did you end up driving? And she was like, no, I did not. I, I know why she didn't. Absolutely. But even in a suicide, there's still a lot of reports that they have to fill out. So these two Fairhaven police detectives would file the police report And to them, they just could not understand why a healthy 18-year-old boy would take his own life. In the truck, they found a journal that he left with suicide notes to his family. He also left passwords to his laptop and his iPhone. And even though they don't always take personal belongings, the responders who were on the scene did and handed that over to the police. So I think it's really important One is, I know the police just could not understand, and I have teenagers. Michael, you were a teenager. I was a teenager. I feel like there's a thousand reasons why teenagers choose to do this or are depressed or feel like that's an option. I did wonder about why the police really went down this pattern. Also, it's a very apparent suicide. There was a generator in the truck that did the carbon Mm -hmm. monoxide. He left letters. He left passwords to his phone and to his laptop. This was planned. Right. There was thought to this. So the fact that the police then are so curious that they decide to go through his phone, which was one of the personal belongings that was there, really, some would say that's great police detective work. And 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 it is. Yeah, they're not wrong. I do like all of all the cases that we've done. I'm like, man, where were these police? Also, if I go missing, can we please ask for these police officers? (laughs) Yes, Carla. How about you just not go missing? I need this level of detail. As you were laying that out, my immediate thought when you said that officers were questioning why he did it well was, well, of course, he's an angsty teenager. It's just a time in your life. There are so many of the hormones, all, all the things in life seem bigger than they actually are like these are the kinds of people and i remember doing this myself like you were at that age where homecoming dances are the biggest fucking thing in the world so just interesting i i do wonder what prompted i'm not sure if they shared any insights into what prompted that but that my immediate thought was yeah just an angsty teenager 
And that's not to downplay it at all. That sounds awful as I say it. But you you smell what I'm stepping No, in. I because I had the same thoughts. Like there's all sorts of reasons and none of them make it right. But there are just all sorts of reasons. So as part of their initial discovery, they do open the phone and it actually had been pretty much wiped out except for one text thread with a young lady named Michelle Carter. And of course, the investigators don't have any idea who Michelle might be. And the family only has some slight recognition to the name Michelle Carter. So, of course, the police department start reviewing all of these messages. And, like, to say that there are messages, I'm talking about there are thousands amongst thousands. And I don't think I said the year earlier, but this was 2014. This was, like, yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, this was very recent, like, as far as recent since we've done so many in the, the God, 90s was eight years ago i know that's it it just feels new compared to all the 90s cases that yeah we did there for a while but i you think about teenagers these days and how much they communicate even like all of us like how much we communicate through text messages i guarantee if you looked through some of our threads between us and our friends there's probably thousands of messages but this was their main source of communication and so it is kind of interesting in this technological world that we're living in where you can literally like reading a script or a book you can literally read people's entire communication with each other because they don't live together through your phone that's terrifying i don't want anyone looking at all of my text messages under that kind of microscope i don't know if we'll get into this later so if i'm jumping the gun tell me to shut up why was the rest of his phone pretty much wiped out? Did they look into that at all? Like, why is it? It almost, that seems purposeful, right? Like, I'm going to delete almost everything except for this chain of messages. Yeah, I don't know why he decided to not delete his messages because it doesn't ever say. I did think the same thing. Like, why did you leave her and your messages? Maybe there was some reason that he did it or like, Maybe something about it is he wanted somebody to see it later. Here's the thing. Like some people are big deleters. So like my husband, for example, he deletes everything all the time. Like at, at first, when I first started dating him, I felt like it was kind of- like, why? Yeah, it was kinda, I was like, huh, it's kind of sketchy. That's sus. Yeah. But then I realized like he does everybody's, like his sisters, everybody. And I will say that like part of what they saw in these messages between Conrad and Michelle seemed very encouraging almost demanding in the nature regarding taking his life. Like Michelle saying that to Conrad? Yeah. And so the investigators immediately contact the DA and they're like, listen, something is awry with this suicide. And so they want to go and talk to Michelle about Conrad because, again, they felt like they had very little information on about who she actually was. So that's exactly what they go to do. They go to have a conversation with Michelle. But before we talk about the conversation with Michelle, I want to back it up just a second and let's talk a little bit about Michelle and Conrad and some of their background. It's not a lot because they're teenagers. Yeah. So some of the information is not as easy to get to. But Conrad Roy was born September 12th, 1995. I will say that like even today you can find, he used to do this video diary and he has quite a few videos out on like YouTube where he talks about being a teen. He talks about having social anxiety. And he really openly discusses his depression. You can see this is a good outlet for him. It's an opportunity for him to just be himself and talk about all the things that are bothering him. But also in watching, especially in light of what we know later comes, it's it's also sad because you can see that he's really struggling with his mental health. Yeah. 
Like many people with depression, Conrad talks about how outsiders can't understand his depression with all that he has in his life. So they say things like, oh, you you have this going for you. You should be happy. Well, that's not how depression works. And that's kind of what Conrad says is like, that's not how it works. Conrad comes from a big family. Both his dad and his grandfather are named Conrad. And they recall so many memories with their son and with their grandson. They come from a big boating family. And the grandfather says that he had him had Conrad on a boat since he was three days old. His parents did get a divorce. And I will say that it was a pretty contentious divorce. In the documentary, they both speak separately and you can tell there's some kind of like civil lines that are drawn but you can tell that the divorce probably was pretty contentious for whatever reason and they really don't discuss a lot about like why they got divorced but it was definitely really hard on Conrad and I think kids pick up on that stuff no matter how much you think you're hiding it as a parent my parents got divorced when I was super young and there's still this temptation as a kid to ask yourself, like, what could I have done? Was this my fault? Did I contribute to it? Could I have kept it together? All this stuff. Divorce is hard on kids. So already going into this, knowing that was an element of of what he was going through, it's just, it's a lot, especially as a teenager. Your kids being upset by the fact that you're a divorce is generally a couple of things. But like one of them is probably the fact that they love both of you. Yes, that you both are loving parents and they don't want to split time with you. So I... For all the reasons, like I get it, it's hard, especially as your kids get older. Maybe you feel like you need to share more with them and that you don't need to protect them the way that you do when they're six and seven. But it is important that even though they're teenagers, they're not adults. And so you still have to protect them. And just remember that like adult problems are adult problems. So in high school, his parents become glaringly aware that Conrad is really starting to have some anxiety and they do start taking him to doctors for help. So they are waving the the white flag and saying like, look, like we're going to get Conrad some help. And he begins to take some prescription drugs in relation to this. And I think that there is some therapy. I do think that the therapy is minimal for whatever reason. I'm not sure if it was his father or his mom, but I don't know that they relied as heavily on therapy as they did on some of the prescription drugs. Good on them, first of all, though, for recognizing that this was a real problem for waking up to the idea that this was not just some normal angsty period that Conrad's going through. This was a real thing. It does make me sad about the therapy. Like All the studies show that the best thing that you can do is a combination of medication and therapy when you are severely depressed. A couple of weeks leading up to his death, he had graduated high school and he had just gotten his captain's license. And his grandfather tells a story about like how proud he was that Conrad had gotten his captain license, that he even shed a few tears. So his grandfather really is this big bubbly boating guy. Honestly, like the grandfather we all imagine, like a Popeye type personality. Oh. So a little bit about Michelle Carter. So she's actually from a town called Plainville. And that's about 20 or 30 minutes outside of where Conrad is from. Okay. Her community describes her as a smart, nice young lady. She was born August 11th, 1996. Michelle battled mental health for most of her young life. So she suffered from a pretty severe eating disorder um, pretty early on. And then 
on top of that, she also had a cutting disorder. Mm-hmm. So both of these go really hand in hand. And the problem is, is that they're both very isolating, especially if you think that this is someone who is dealing with this type of things at ages 12, 13, 14. Because you remember 14 is when she'll be put on Prozac. And so like these are really severe issues that she's dealing with at such a young age. Um, You can tell too that like she's just desperate for someone to not only show her attention but to love her. Like she wants to be with somebody the whole time. And we don't know a lot about her family dynamics, but both of her parents are still married and she has a sister. And it seems to be from everything we know that it's a normal, you know, air quotes, childhood. So because they're so young, both Conrad and Michelle, that's really kind of the information that we have about both of them. Yeah. So to pick kind of back up, investigators go to talk to Michelle at her high school and interview her regarding Conrad. How soon after them finding the body and the phone? I think this was, was in this? like a couple of days. Like okay. it was very fast because as soon as they started reading the message, the investigators said they started printing it out and they each took home like thousands of transcripts Jeez. to start going through. And they came in the next day and they were like, What the fuck did we just read? And they immediately let the DA know something is not right. So the investigators began asking Michelle. By the way, they go to her high school and interview her regarding Conrad. So we've kind of talked about it before. Like, that's a no-no. You need to make sure that you have parents there. But that's actually where they conduct the interview at is at her high school. Jeez, I'm also just imagining her getting called to the office for something like that. Like, getting called in to the principal's office or wherever she was called is already a big deal. That's already a nerve-wracking experience. And then you get in there and it's like, hi, Michelle, we're the police. We need to chat. Right, about your boyfriend who committed suicide Fuck. a couple days before. They begin asking her about the last day of his life and if she had any contact with him. She begins to vaguely say that he had been talking about ending his life and that he felt like he had no one to help him. She recalls the night before he died that their phone call had been cut short. The detectives let her know that they have a search warrant for her phone and they will be taking it. She does like ask some questions about like, okay, well, where, like, when am I going to get my phone back? And they're like, when we're done with it. She's like, okay, well, like, when is that going to be? That's my private property. Right. That's my phone. This has given me the weird feels, Carla. The weird thing too is like executing it again because she's a minor. So like executing a search warrant. Conrad was 18 years old, but she wasn't. So like she was still 17. She was still 17. Yeah. So like executing a search warrant and taking her phone again with like no parents around and just interviewing her with no parents around was even like the principal or a teacher or anything. I would guess that somebody would have to be there. But I'm going to tell you, if I'm the principal or the teacher, I don't want any business of that. I would be on the no. I'd be like, not it. Yeah. Hey, hey, Michelle, you should not be saying anything without a lawyer. I guess this like comes back to and I know like. Again, I'm going to be hypocritical because in some cases I'll be like, oh, that made you look guilty. In other cases, that doesn't. But like, again, don't talk to police without a lawyer. Yeah. Like whether you're guilty or innocent, don't talk to – and not if you're 17. So they do take her phone and they begin to download all of the data because if you remember, like they only have Conrad's phone. So it doesn't mean that like he couldn't have manipulated some of the messages. And then the other thing for her – for her phone that's going to come into play is not just the messages that went between her and Conrad, but the messages that would go to other people. Mm-hmm. So they needed all of the data. 
So the investigators go back to the office and they begin to read through the thousands and thousands of messages between them. And the officers strongly believe that without Michelle Carter, that Conrad would be alive. One thing that I didn't do, so I'll step back just a second. So Conrad and Michelle meet about two years prior to this. They are visiting, one's visiting their great aunt, the other one's visiting their grandparents, and I guess they all lived in the same retirement community, and it was like, oh, my family member's here, they're young, they're actually from Massachusetts, you guys only live about 20 minutes apart, let me introduce you. And Conrad and Michelle met each other, had this kind of instant connection, bonded, exchange phone numbers. I think they may have spent the evening together, maybe like the next day they bike, you know, rode bikes and hung out and stuff like that. And that's essentially when their relationship began. So this was about two years prior to that. And I put air quotes around the word relationship because there's definitely like questions about whether or not they're actually in a relationship. So throughout the next two years, as we like read through their text messages or examine their text messages, it's important to know they actually only saw each other in person like maybe two or three times tops. Yeah. To the point where like his mom definitely knew that there was a young lady in his life and that he was texting her all the time. But like her parents almost didn't know who he was at all. So imagine being her parents who don't even really know who this young man is. And then all of a sudden your daughter is being questioned about his suicide. I also just didn't realize, and I know I'm not super familiar with this case, but that they had seen each other in person so infrequently. Again, going back to this idea that she's somehow culpable for this act, you just would think that it would be You know what I mean, Carla, if someone was trying to blame you for my death and they said, well, they've only met like two to three times, like most of most crimes like that are a crime of passion when you're talking murder. And this is more complex because it's suicide. And I just would have expected more than that. I would have expected more in-person contact. It just immediately for me, how could she have had such an influence over him having only seen him in person a very small handful of times? And I think it really comes into play later on as we discuss the relationship and talk about like who really was in a relationship with who. And to me, the fact that they saw each other so infrequently really plays into that. So the investigators, again, to them, they believe that without Michelle Carter, Conrad would be alive. Immediately to their head after reading these messages – they're starting to put blame. They talk to the DA and convince the DA, like, hey, this is something we need to go against. On February 5th, about six months later from July to February, the grand jury returns an indictment for involuntary manslaughter. Oh my gosh. Michelle gets arrested, booked, and bailed out the following day. This kind of starts the media onslaught. What starts to happen is once the trial actually begins, the text messages are released and they're wild. And I think if you take a lens and you only look at certain things, it's very easy to understand why the narrative went to Michelle Carter being guilty of helping or coercing or being involved in Conrad's suicide. Let me take it back to say that while the grand jury returned an indictment and they did file charges, her lawyer immediately takes it to the Supreme Court. Oh, heck yeah. Because he's like, listen, 
her words did not cause him t- to commit suicide. And I think it's important to say, I know we've kind of like hinted at it, but like in these, you'll hear that there are messages for her, like do it. When are you going to do it? Why haven't you done it yet? You should do it. Like I'll be here for your family. There's lots of these kind of incessant messages. There is lots of these talks of suicide and we'll definitely dive into it as we talk about with the prosecution. But the, her defense attorney is like, first of all, she cannot be held responsible for manslaughter because she actually didn't do anything. He committed suicide and it wasn't like she was like, hey, if you don't commit suicide, I'm going to push you off the cliff or I'm going to push you out of this building or I'm going to beat you up or I'm going to cause physical harm. Because that's what I think of when you say coercion, Carla, is that you were holding something over my head. There was leverage that you had against me. That's not what was going on here. No. And in the documentary, it does a really good job to show some clips of this actually being presented to the Supreme Court. And you can see the judges are like, this isn't like you think that she is just fine of what she said. And of course it's not. No, it's not fine when anybody is saying what was said in these text messages. It's not okay. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're legally responsible for someone else's decision to end their life. I understand the difference here is that someone's life was actually lost. And I I don't want to downplay that. I want to be very sensitive to it. But that's basically like saying, if I'm really mad at someone and in bad color say, I want to kill you, that that's just like killing them. It's not. Like, is that a gross thing to say? Yes. Is that a kind of violent thing to say? Yes. But is it actual violence? No, ma'am, it is not. So, Michael, if I'm held responsible for all the messages that I have sent (laughs) to people, I am in big, big trouble. You and me both, girl. And I will tell you that after watching this case, I really started to scrutinize what I put in writing in anger with certain people. Yeah. Because I was like, I'm not being held responsible. <laughs> yeah. Not because I disagree with what I said, but because I yeah. don't want to be found guilty, guilty. of oh, anything. Yeah. No. Because <laughs> I give no fucks. <laughs> I just don't want to be held responsible. Massachusetts is one of <laughs> 11 states that doesn't have a statue to address this type of action. So like not only for like all the text, all the emotional reasons, like this case becomes very controversial because there's actually not a precedent in that state for it. The defense argued that her words alone without indicating some threat to him doesn't make it a crime. Maybe yes, morally it's not good. It doesn't look good. It's not a good look, but it wasn't a legal crime, nor could they make it a crime retroactively. Like her defense attorney was like, there is no law for this. And you can't make it a law just because you don't agree with what she said. Supreme Court, they said, yes, we can. Then we now are to proceed to trial. They felt like the claim that they were staking was absolutely within the legal walls of their jurisdiction. And then the case just of wildness about these two teenagers' life would start to play out, not just in the media. But, you know, here's, you know, two stories so far that have come, one the documentary and then the TV show that would later come to portray kind of the situation between them. And I'll be honest, I have asked both of my kids to, like, go watch this. And I hope that other people who have older children or teenagers, that they do encourage them to watch something like this because I think it's important to know some of the red flags that we see here with this situation. I'm baffled 
at the idea that the Supreme Court let this go forward, especially given that there was no law on the books about this. Typically, something that you've done has to be in direct violation of the law. And was this the state Supreme Court at this point, or was yeah. this the federal Supreme no, Court? No, it's the state's Supreme Court. Okay, so maybe... Well, that makes it even more confusing then, because I could almost understand the federal Supreme Court at that point, because there might be precedents at the federal level that doesn't exist at the state level. I just, my jaw dropped to the ground when you said that. Like, I get that it's complicated, and any case that has to do with the sanctity of human life gets complicated, and it should. I'm glad that those are complicated cases for us. Also, this is a child, Like, even in a cut-and-dry murder, we would be being very careful about how we handle this because it was committed, and I'm putting air quotes that you can't see because she obviously wasn't there to actually commit anything, but it was committed when she was 17. Yeah, and because Uh. of that, so this case moves to juvenile court because she was, at the time— So it did go juvenile, mm -hmm, okay. It did go juvenile court, and so it would preside in juvenile court— The other thing, and we talked about this in the last episode with the Swan Street murders, the other thing that increases its oddities is her legal team and herself, because she has to agree to it, decide to forego a jury trial and chooses to hold this case by only a judge. The strategy behind this, and her defense lawyer speaks about it, is that given how emotional this case is, And I know you mentioned about you hadn't seen some of the text messages. Some of the text messages at the time that had been released, again, really focused on like, why hadn't he killed himself? When are you going to do it? Why haven't you done it? Offered other ways like drink bleach and trying to find less violent ways to end his life. Jesus. There's no good look here. So because of this very emotional case that has already been leaked to the media, rather than asking jurors who could be swayed by emotions... It would be judged by someone who knows the law. And again, like her defense lawyer, he honestly, like throughout the entire trial and as he's talking this documentary, is still so blown away that he's even having to defend her because he's like, there is no crime here. Even while there's no true crime here, as you start to dissect this and dissect these children, I really don't feel like there's a crime here. Especially around the actual loss of life. Right. If there was some other lesser charge that they could come up with, some sort of verbal version of assault or battery or something to that effect, I'm still not all the way there, but I could get somewhat there in my head. But the idea that there's built-in culpability to a physical death during a non-physical interaction, I'd... Okay. Tell on, tell on. A couple of things. Obviously knowing now by the text messages that Michelle Carter knew that Conrad was going to commit suicide. So a couple of things. Or knew that he said that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Knew that he had said that. Right. And then of course, a couple of days after his death, some things that happened like before she was actually arrested, before the trial, like while the investigation was happening, before they had gotten the indictment. There's a couple of things that Michelle does that I think really adds to the fact that his family really has strong feelings against her. Days after the suicide, Michelle texts his sister, says, hey, hi, remember me? I'm dating your brother, asking if they had found Conroy yet because he was missing at one point in time, and then asks the sister to follow up with her when they did. I think I said days. This was like hours after he was missing because it was like about a day before they found him. 
So after they found him, she texts his sister and the mom both to let them know like how sorry she is that this happened and wonders if she could stop by sometime soon and see them. She begins to ask about the funeral and like finding out when he's cremated. She even asks the mom if she could have some of his ashes that were going to be spread later on, which is always so weird. I don't know why people want that. But she mentions in one of her messages that she tried to save him, which it does make his mom question that because according to her, Lynn Roy, she didn't know that the suicide was going to happen or wasn't aware of it or that he was struggling with issues. But here we have messages back and forth stretching back weeks. Right. And then Michelle saying, I tried to save him. And in Lynn's mind is, did you know something that I didn't know? And I'll say for whatever it's worth that this was not Conrad's first attempt at suicide. And so one of my questions too. Yeah, it was not his first attempt. It was not even his second attempt. It was closer to four attempts. Poor kid. He was just a kid. It's Uh. so sad. I think too for his mom to really like to ask herself like, oh, I didn't know that anything was happening. I feel is just a moment is just a statement in grief because of the fact that he had really suffered so much with his mental health. Yeah. The other thing is, so after he passed, Michelle decides to host a baseball charity game. Conrad was a big baseball player and they call it Homers for Conrad. And so it was going to be raising money for mental health. It's interesting because the game ended up being held in Plainsville, which is where Michelle is from, rather than the town that Conrad was from. And that's where he lived with his family, and that's where his friends were, and that's where he attended high school and played baseball at. And so his friends, you know, were like, hey, why wouldn't you do it here? Like, we're all here. We don't like, so we don't have to drive over there. You know, plus you could probably get more people because they're all very familiar with him. His family has this boating legacy here, but she really blames and says that she doesn't know how to plan or organize some somewhere that like she's not familiar with. Even though the friends are texting her those concerns, she's stapled and this is where it's going to happen at. And of course the friends and some of the family do come over to that area to participate in this. There, Michelle takes pictures with the team. His friend's team wins. There's pictures of them. People remember and recall that Michelle was very happy, surrounded by friends and family during these tournaments. It wasn't long after the tournament that then it leads into this indictment and then, of course, the onset of trial. First, let's talk about the prosecution because the prosecution really focuses on the weeks leading up to Conrad's death. rather than the full two years of their relationship. And there's definitely some reasons on why they did that. Before we start, I will say a media reporter from Esquire, I think sums up this trial perfectly. Both families are fighting to prove that this wasn't their fault. The prosecution is going to tell you that this is the fault of Michelle Carter and that no one else is to blame. So they tell you that Michelle is a very needy young lady and that she does not have a lot of friends. And it's really sad because you hear testimony from girls that she hung out with and how many of them will say that they really didn't like her, that she was very clingy, she was emotional, and they never hung out with her outside of school. That she would even express to them that she has no friends, that she would constantly text them to hang out. They would all make excuses not to hang out because they really didn't want to be super close with her because she was so clingy. To me, 
it all comes off as really sad. Like yeah. I know as the prosecution thinks that they're parading this young lady after young lady coming up and talking about it, that it is detrimental to Michelle's case. But to me, it doesn't. It makes me walk away with a lot of sympathy for this young lady. Yeah. That she's very attention driven. The other thing that she would do is she would constantly text them. Like if she wasn't getting a response, she would just text them like over and over and over again until she did get a response. So when Conrad goes missing, Michelle begins to text her friends. These texts actually start a few days before he's actually missing. And the prosecution says that this is her dry run to see how her friends would react to this very emotional situation. She says that it's her fault, that she wanted to save him. And of course, her friends are responding, it's not your fault. And they are definitely paying more attention to her. They're very worried that this young man is missing. She even tells them, I think he killed himself. And so after he does die, she asks them to hang out to get her mind off of it. She posts all over social media. Her friends show up. They text her more often. They're responsive to her in social media. She does text her friend, and this is the cliffhanger. This is what it all comes down to. A few weeks after he died, she texts her friend Sam that this is her fault, that she had called him while he was doing it, and he said that it was working, and he was scared, and he called her, and she told him to get back in the fucking car. So let's just play it again. He's in the car. The generator's running. The carbon, it's becoming a very... He's starting to realize he's getting sleepy, doing things. It's getting to be a very toxic situation in the car. He gets out of the truck. He calls her. And it does. The records show there's like a 47-minute call and a 43-minute call. An hour and a half, they talk. And at some point at the end, she tells her friend that I told him to get back in the fucking car. Again, like it's – none of it's good. It's so complicated. Yeah. You see things like this and you get – prosecution was coming from i still think it's 27 layers of fucked up but it's i see where they were coming from like that's wow michael like so you don't have kids but you have nieces and nephews like you have familial family members that are as close to you as children if you were to see that one of your family members was in a moment of crisis and that is how someone responded to your loved one of course you're angry. Of course you want justice. Like I am a parent. I mean, I've said it on many occasions. Like someone hurts my children. Like I'm going to burn the whole city down. Yeah. So I get it. (laughs) I get wanting retribution for someone that hurt your child, but it's just not the full picture. Even if it's just not a great slice of picture, like it, it doesn't look good. And so some things that are coming to mind too, this gives me very Scott Peterson vibes. If you're a person that believes that he's innocent, not a good dude, like cheated on his wife, lied out the wazoo, legit talked to his mistress at his wife's wake before it was confirmed that she and his son were dead. Not good. It doesn't mean he's a murderer. Same thing with Michelle Carter. None of this looks good. Clearly troubled broken teenager herself maybe as an adult i don't know i'd need to see more but if if it were an adult saying and doing those things i'd be saying not a good person doesn't mean she's a murderer absolutely so the day of the text message like the day that he commits suicide he is literally texting her saying i mean i again like looking through the phone looking through the messages his investigators we're kind of seeing it firsthand i do see why they were like whoa something is going on so he is texting her 
the day that he committed suicide, why am I being so hesitant? Why am I the way I am? And you can tell like he is pleading for someone to help him change his mind. And it is sad because there was this moment that someone could have helped him. Like in those moments, Michelle could have said like, no, don't do this or called his mom or called someone to help him. But instead, she assures him that it is okay to leave. Like, this is the right thing to do. They talk about, like, where to do it at. Like, okay, I'm getting ready to do it. Okay, I love you. Like, those are the messages. They do share, like, I love you. I love you too messages in between. Like, have you done it yet? Here's where you could go. You know, don't give, like, you're going to be so happy. I'm going to be here for your family. So it's, it is a very fucked up, very complicated array of text messages. And really, the other thing that the prosecution does, which is weird to me, is they take the jury to the site of where Conrad killed himself, which might I just add again is like the back of a Kmart parking lot. So it's not like in that one show, The Staircase, where you're like in this little staircase and you're trying to show the jury like how this either accident or murder could have happened. I don't know what going to this Kmart parking lot did for the jury, but... And was this the jury or the judge? Because I thought. Oh, you're right. You're right. The judge. No, okay. And just clarifying in my head. So the judge took the judge to the back of this came out parking lot where. But the violent act was localized to his car. Yeah, it's it's all it's so weird. Oh, they were making an emotional play there. That's yeah. weird. It's just so weird. Really, that is the prosecution's case. We've talked about some circ- circumstantial things. Like that is the whole of it. Is that her text messages led to his death? And then they talked about the fact that she was needy, that she was attention seeking. Like that's in their mind. She did this for attention to get those friends of hers to be her friend. Just before we get into this, because I have a feeling that the defense's side is going to educate me on some other things here. But just from the prosecution side of things, I get where they're coming from. It 100%. doesn't feel entirely wrong. Like you you see all this laid out, whether it's caused by who knows what variables are causing her to be this way, but she is seeking attention. That is documented. Her friends back it up. At some point, it seems to be this realization based on what you were telling me earlier that she can, in fact, get additional attention from her friends by playing this card. They they are more participative on social media with her. They are texting her back and everything. It feels a little too neat and tidy for me, and I imagine that's what we're going to go into here. I'm just saying that on its face, I understand where the prosecution is coming from. I would double down and tell you that like, not only should we understand it, I would tell you that is part of the problem is that she was very attention seeking. It's just not, it's not the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem is that it's driven by the mental illness. Like it's not that she's this bad person. It's that she has all this other thing and she's 17 years old. She needs some growing up to do. Like she needs some intensive therapy. All of those things, absolutely yes. But like also doesn't mean that she should be held legally responsible for this murder. Like that's where it gets so gray. I know you also said her home life doesn't seem like it was too unstable, but this is also making me think what was her home life actually like? What was going on there? What were some dynamics in that house? Because that level of neediness, to me, one of the possible explanations of that could be, I'm not I'm not getting hugged by mom and dad. Yeah. 
So I will say the documentary doesn't touch it at all, right? But I will say the Hulu show, and obviously like some of that is dramatized, but I thought the same thing. And I feel like the the Hulu show dramatizes some of that is where it's almost like this very much like imposter syndrome where maybe that because she comes from a little bit of money and that they live this very like perfect life and her two girls should be perfect and Michelle is flawed. And isn't the perfect child. Yeah. And it does look like there's some dynamic between her sister. All of this is dramatized from the Hulu, but it also made me think like that's probably a piece of reality. Interesting. Now lead into the defense. So the prosecution rests and the defense, they come back and say, again, you need to say like not guilty, dismiss this case because again, this is a suicide, not a homicide. And she can't be found guilty for this. The judge, of course, denies the motion to dismiss and the defense like must present its case. And I feel like they do present a pretty good case. First, they talk about Conrad's own battles with mental illness. They talk about his decision and his choices that led him into the parking lot rather than only focusing on Michelle's words that led him into that parking lot. They talk about his internet searches about suicide which are hundreds of searches of suicide, including drinking bleach, hanging himself, poisoning himself. He texts many violent ways to Michelle, talking about guns, nooses. These two talked about suicide all the time, wishing they could be with each other as they killed himself. Like they were almost obsessed with it. It was it's very Romeo Juliet. This hey. like weird fascination with suicide. He constantly talks about how hard his life is over the two-year relationship. So as they begin to share stories from the two years, they do talk about an altercation that Conrad had with his father. And the Conrad looked like he had a black eye. So the police end up getting called. He was arguing with his dad and his dad's girlfriend, where apparently, according to Conrad, the girlfriend had called him a piece of shit. And the father was arrested for domestic violence assault on his son. The father talks about it afterwards. And he pretty much says, as part of the documentary, I'm not going to go into details about what happened that night, but I was being a parent. And sometimes being a parent of a teenage boy means that we are putting ourselves in positions that we shouldn't have. And while I wish it didn't go down the way that it did, I don't regret it. And I probably would have done the same thing. I have brothers... I have a teenage boy. I know that sometimes with boys specifically, they like to bow up at their dads. And I know that my brothers have definitely bowed up at my dad before and it did not end the way they thought it was going to end. Yeah. So for for whatever that's worth, I so I can completely see this being a completely legitimate situation. I also don't know that Conrad's retelling of this story in text messages to Michelle is capital T true. Especially if we already know that he is a mentally unwell person. His perception of the entire world is skewed, much less just this interaction with his dad. Yeah. So the defense attorney, they're saying like, here are all the other things that brought Conrad to make the decision that he did. Fights with his parents, fights with his dad, his own mental illness, the fact that he was almost obsessed with kind of talking about suicide, had searched suicide, talked about suicide on his own over the two-year period. This was not like a new thing. This was a reoccurring issue. 
The defense attorney presents an expert. Originally, the expert was called in to evaluate Conrad's prescription drug use, which could make him suicidal. He was on Celexa, an antidepressant. And the doctor says, yes, it's a contributing factor, but it's not an overwhelming factor. There are many other things in Conrad's life that would cause this. He was angry at his dad for the very contentious divorce. The doctor therapist, he then begins to look at Michelle, who was also on psychiatric meds. So she had started Prozac in 2011 at 14 years old. And in his opinion... Gosh, so young to start a drug like that. So, Oh, it's incredibly... But the doctor says that like she actually should have never been given Prozac due to her bulimia. And not long after she had been given Prozac, she attempted suicide by trying to hang herself. Oh my gosh, Carla. I know. I'm telling you, there are no winners here. It is just toxic, toxic, toxic. Conrad, as we kind of hinted to earlier, had also attempted suicide in 2012 when he first met Michelle. This had resulted in a stay in a psychiatric hospital under medical advice, and he begins to tell her that he's hearing voices to kill himself. And I will say that at this point, like Michelle is very desperate, and there's no part of their conversation where Michelle is on board with the suicide. She's not trying to encourage him. In fact, she's desperate to get a hold of him, and he essentially ghosts her. He attempts a suicide and then like doesn't talk to her for a few days. Of course, he is in a psychiatric hospital, so I'm sure that adds to it. In total, he attempted suicide almost four times, so throughout his life before the last time. The doctor says the behavior of Conrad, that he's texting Michelle really dark items, leads Michelle over time to a very dark place. They begin sharing stories of suicidal thoughts and ideations, and the the doctor believes, and again, he's a therapist, a very renowned therapist, that he believes that both of them are out of their mind. Yes. And that this is a recipe for disaster. Like this describe is a Romeo and Juliet playground. So this is what I was going to say earlier is like, it is so important that you are surrounding, like not only as adults, but as children, as teenagers, that you are surrounding yourself by positive people. So imagine these two very depressed teenagers who are full of ideations around suicide, and they were the perfect storm. When you say misery loves company, that's exactly what happened here. And like as a parent, I know this is the last person that I would want my teenager to go asking for advice by someone who is also either very toxic or very disturbed or struggling themselves to be giving my child answers to solve their problems, right? It also just feels like it creates this echo chamber that kind of glamorizes yes. the act, right? Because if this is my only confidant, and at least in Michelle's case, not well beloved by the world. Right. So the one person that is paying her any mind is constantly talking about this dark shit. And so over time, she starts talking about it back too. And now we're just feeding into each other. I'm going to say this and I, dear God, this is such a messed up. My heart just breaks for these two kids. They were kids. That's the part of it. There's no good that's coming from any no. of this. And, you know, the doctor uses this term. And there's another psychiatrist that's on there. And she says that this term is not medically used. And there's a lot of questions about it in the medical community. 
But he says that both these kids are intoxicated from their prescription drugs. They call it involuntary intoxicated. I don't have a lot of history or experience with these types of drugs, but I do know people who have had. And I can say that like, while it's very good and you need to make sure that if you need to be medicated that you're doing it, I do know that it is a slippery edge and it is something that needs to be under the care of a medical doctor. And sometimes that means that you're making changes or tweaks to that medicine every week and that you're having open conversations about the side effects that you're having. Yes. Like it it includes all of that. So especially on the young brain though, just to oh, pull that thread a yeah. little bit. Like how many of these drugs now have open disclaimers on them that they can cause su- suicidal thoughts and ideation in young people. Your brain isn't done forming until you're like 25. Like you it's literally you're dropping this craziness into a child's brain. Of course, sometimes the outcomes are all sorts of crazy. I haven't heard this term, the involuntary intoxication, but that completely jibes with me. That, me too. That, that makes sense. It feels right. Like it feels like things that I've heard other people talk about. Yeah. It is important to note that Michelle was taking Prozac and then just weeks leading up to his suicide began a prescription, oh, also started taking Celexa. So in addition to or instead of? So it says was also, so I'm not sure if it was in addition addition. to. Yeah. Dear goodness. And I don't know how those drugs work because I have no experience with them. So it it could be in care of or it could be in addition to. I don't know Celexa. I know that Prozac is an SSRI, so a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it's basically... Preventing your body from reabsorbing some serotonin, which is one of our feel-good chemicals in our brains, it's preventing that from being reabsorbed, which means that there is more available to your brain to leverage. That's one of the ways they try to correct this imbalance that a lot of depressed and anxious people go through. Hmm, That might be something worth digging into. And if anyone out in our listener verse knows anything about this and how a drug like Celexa and Prozac might interact with each other, I just would be fascinated because that kind of combination, even in adults, can be very, very dangerous. It's it's unpredictable how it's going to affect you and your personality and the things you're thinking. To your point, this is something that even with fully fledged adults you need to be doing in lockstep with your doctor much less and i will say it for the 15,000th time much less a child yeah no all of the things so the doctor really says that like on july 2nd when michelle again 10 days before conrad's suicide michelle switches her arguments against him dying and begins to think it's a good thing and that she can help his family after he's gone so the doctor describes her in the last few days questioning him why haven't you done it when are you going to do it why you know how how are you going to do it like it is her being hypermanic and that the i guess change the prescription could cause her to be hypermanic we've talked about this i'm a planner i love like for things to flow into a certain way especially if it's the way that i think they should go i can get this like hypermanic state that the doctor says that she's in The defense argues that you can't look at the weeks leading up, that you must look at the full two years. The doctor will describe the relationship not only as toxic, but actually abusive. 
Conrad tells her that one thing that will make me hate you is if you tell anyone. So he's very fixated that this is a secret relationship, that this is he's secret. isolating her. Yeah, these, these, this is a secret conversations that I'm having. You're the only one that I can talk to about this. He's setting the stage that Michelle doesn't feel like she could tell anybody. That's the fence's argument. In the beginning, Michelle does try to be there for him. She tries to tell him not to kill him himself she wants to save him sometimes these texts are met with silence after many messages where he's like hey i'm going to kill myself and this isn't one of those four attempts but he's like oh i'm going to kill myself and then he'll stop responding to all of her text messages that night he knows exactly what he's doing right like well, maybe not because he's not mentally well but you know what i mean like he understands he's eliciting a response in the same regard that like michelle is attention seeking from these friends Conrad is also attention-seeking in his conversations with Michelle in this way. And Such this, a mutually toxic information. It's so crazy. And this pattern goes over, and you think over two years. So it, it does make sense that maybe at the end of it, you get to this place where she's like, okay, like you're miserable. You're not happy in life. Like maybe you should do this. Like maybe this would be the better thing for you. Michelle would tell him that he is her best friend, that she doesn't want him to leave. Also, Conrad mentions to Michelle that his mom knows that he's suicidal and that she hasn't done anything to stop him, kind of furthering the belief that like Michelle is his savior and he's the only one that she can talk to. She's the only one trying to stop. I don't believe that Conrad's mom knew like of course not that he was suicidal and didn't do anything about it she obviously did do things about it i think her statement saying that she was like shocked or that she didn't know anything about it like that i think is in grief but she definitely wasn't like oh yes he's 100 percent suicidal he's not doing better you know I, I think those are two different statements michelle begins to think that it's actually a good idea to help him die and that she can help in the aftermath that they share texts planning out how she's going to be there for his family. And he is completely on board with this plan. That's how the conversation starts to turn. Like, yes, you can be there for my family. It's why he left the notes. And he left, I think, something to Michelle, too. Why he left the passwords to his iPhone and his laptop. Like, they begin really planning out what this looks like. And that he's leaving Michelle behind so that she can help his family be okay while he's gone. The doctor believes that the messages leading up and on the day of Conrad's death really are doing are because of that hypermanic that it's disrupting the plan that's in Michelle's mind. In messages, Conrad could say to her, F you bitch, ignoring her for hours and then almost like love bombing her with messages. And it's really clear when you look over the two years that Michelle had much more of this grandiose vision of her head, of their relationship, that did not match reality. So, like, she was the one really considering them hardcore boyfriend, yes. girlfriend, all of that. We led to it earlier that they had talks about hanging out and something would always fail. We essentially got to capture everything in text, but I think it's also much more about them being in this relationship than them actually being in a real relationship. That's like right. they didn't need the physical part of things because emotionally they were meeting every need in this. I like love what you said. Like it's in this toxic echo chamber. So there was no need to meet in person. That's probably why it continued to flail off. They were off. getting out of this what they needed just from 
this messaging back and forth. Yep. So they would even talk about having a baby together. And sometimes it was that they were going to have one together or that some that Michelle would have one later on in life. And she would name him Conrad. And like he Conrad would become this baby's like guardian angel. A quote from the documentary that I really like is one level of their conversation is a kid who's going to kill himself. And the other is romantic fantasy because that's what it was, was romantic fantasy. The other romantic fantasy, this is another weird thing that ends up playing out, not only in the media, but ends up playing in the trial, is Michelle was obsessed with Leah Michelle from the show Glee. Glee was pretty popular, 2014. And she would use lines not only from Glee, but actually from interviews that Leah Michelle had done all the time in her conversation with Conrad. Like those were her own words. Not like, oh, I heard this cool line from Glee. But she would use it as her own sentences. And of course, a lot of people know that one of the guys from Glee, Corey, is it Monteith? Yeah, Monteith, I think is how you say it. Yeah, that he was found dead in his hotel room. Leah Michelle had been in a relationship with him. And this was about a year before Conrad died. So again, remember all this romantic fantasy. Remember this fixation on saving him. And then here's this person that she kind of idolizes who was in a relationship with someone who was found dead and that she watches Leah Michelle. So Michelle starts to talk to Conrad about how she started thinking about how hard it would be if he died. But there's this weird parallel that she would step into this role that Leah Michelle played and lived like where the boyfriend died. There's all these, you know, weird glee references that play into this trial. And the media is eating it up. And oh, of course. Yeah. It's better than television for the media. Oh, 100%. I don't know why it was televised because it was juvenile court. Some of it comes around this fascination around teenage girls. They described her as a 17-year-old black widow. Okay, well, that's not really reality. They seem to miss the piece That here are these two children who have very serious mental illnesses. There is a failure somewhere here. I don't know who it is. I'm not blaming either family. But there is a clear failure somewhere here that these two kids suffering so heavily with mental health issues are thrown together. And this is now the outcome of that. Jesus, yes. So that really sums up like – The defense says, you know what? It's not just the last two weeks. It's this whole story between them. And I have to say, other than the fact that she did not kill him, I don't even know why it's a true court case. But then given the surmounting amount of mental health illness on both sides, the prescription medicine, she clearly is kind of disturbed. She has no friends. So she's incredibly lonely. All of those things. The judge says in his sentence, the Commonwealth has proven that Michelle Carter had reckless and wanton behavior. So he said that Carter instructed Conrad Roy to get back into his truck, well knowing of all the feelings that he had exchanged with her, his ambiguities, his fears, his concerns. This court finds that instructing Mr. Roy to get back in the truck constituted wanton and reckless conduct. And so he did sentence her guilty to manslaughter. He gave her two and a half years of prison with five years probation, which is still not a huge charge. But remember, though, she's in juvenile court. So 
It's not like you can't sentence them to like life or something like that. Yeah. Well, the fact that they chose not to try her as an adult, though, speaks volumes. Yeah, I that am... tells me that they also saw this as very complicated. Yeah. So the, the thing that I really come back to, and especially because the judge quoted it at the end, is where she said to her friend in a text message, I told him to get back into the fucking truck. Yeah. So we know that she's a pathological liar. She lies all the time and that she lies for attention. And the prosecution and the judge essentially picked and chose when to believe her. I have always stated from the beginning, Michelle Carter did not testify in this. And I have wondered and still think to the, till today, she actually never said that to him. But she definitely said that for attention-seeking reasons to her friend. And because of it, she went to jail. Like, had she known that that was going to be the crux. But I truly, like, for, you were on the phone with him for 47 minutes the first time and 43 minutes the second time. Like, I don't believe, and also given some of her personality and stuff like that, it just doesn't seem, it's a little less plausible to hear that kind of reaction. It's just interesting that's the piece that they picked so heavily apart. That's the outcome of the trial. I'll talk a little bit about what's been happening since then. Michael, what do you think about a freaking guilty version and the fact that it's focused on her telling him to get back in the truck? That's where the judge said she became culpable. I like your point about this is picking one statement that would take five seconds out of an hour and a half worth of calls. So even if I'm to believe a world where this isn't just something that she told her friend, but she really did say this to Conrad while she was on the phone with him. Bitch, that ain't all she said in an hour and a half. It it completely takes one statement out of context. For all we know, the rest of the hour and a half could have been asking him to reconsider, talking to him about maybe we should wait a little bit on this. This could have been, I mean, we just don't know what that conversation contained, Carla. And this starts to feel a little bit like Long Island Lolita, mm-hmm. where it's this demonization of this girl like you said this this fixation on this teenage girl while not recognizing any of the pain that she was going through that she clearly was going through some issues herself it relinquishes him of any guilt of i i agree with the term you used earlier i think what he often did to her was outright abuse it's worse than gaslighting you are literally making someone think that you potentially took your own life and doing it in a way that makes them feel responsible for it over and over and over again. So in addition to whatever mental illness was already simmering beneath the surface in Michelle Carter's head and heart, you're now adding to it. Like you're just pouring gasoline on a fire that had already been started up. I don't know what to think about the judge. And I'm not, we've said it tons, I'm not a law professional. I don't know, and certainly not in the state of Massachusetts, do I know anything about what their laws say there just as a human being this woman has been through some shit too not woman this girl has been through some things too and you don't get to dismiss them outright and you can't on one hand say that she's mentally unwell that she has all of these issues but then on the other say that she is of sound mind responsible for someone else's death those two things do not make sense to me. Make it make sense, Carla. Make it make sense. Like, I, know. I don't. You can't like, oh, you're crazy. 
But no, you had this one moment of clarity in all of your crazy where you told this person to go kill themselves. We're not even sure you actually said it, but you told a friend that you said it. Like, what? Yeah, that's the part. It's not like she didn't, she never texts that, like, get back in the fucking car. And there's a lot of media about that they thought that she actually texted that, but that's not true. What she did was text a recall of the memory of her phone conversation to a friend. And I would say, too, that, like, all the things that I would say about all the reasons that I don't think Michelle is guilty is the same reasons why I don't say that for whatever Conrad did in this relationship that I feel very – is that it all has to do with their illness, essentially, and their struggles with mental health. I don't feel like Conrad is a bad person. I think even like for some of the levels of toxicity and the things that he said, while I don't put blame on Michelle, I also don't put blame on Conrad for the exact same reasons. They're just two very struggling, very toxic young teenagers. After appeals, because of course it was definitely appealed, and they were denied. Again, every time this stuff is denied, I'm shocked all over again because of how there's just no precedence on it. Michelle Carter entered Bristol County Jail, and she was released after only 11 months. The prison said that she was a model prisoner, and they had no issues from her, and she would be on probation. And really, she has stepped away and been completely quiet And there is little information on what's going on with her life, which I'm sure was only added to the fact that Hulu did that show last year. And the only picture I've seen of her, she had cut her hair and she is raking the leaves in her yard. And I'm sure not appreciative that paparazzi is out there taking pictures of her. Right. So going back to the fact that there really is no legal precedence for this case, his parents, Conrad's parents, are trying to push a bill in Massachusetts that would make suicidal coercion a criminal offense. So the bill did lose some steam due to the pandemic in 2021. Makes complete sense. But they're going to go through it a second round, and they feel pretty confident that it's going to pass then. There's also 42 other states that have laws like this, so they feel like there is precedence for Massachusetts to pass this law. And they have focused on remembering Conrad. It's actually called Conrad's Law. So pushing this law so that no other family has to go through something around this when it comes to suicide and really just putting their lives back together. It's such a crazy case. There are no winners. I don't feel good about any of it. I just don't know that I believe she should have been prosecuted. But of course, that judge did not ask me what I thought. What I don't understand... What does this fix? What does, like a suicide is already a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm sure there are instances of true nefarious suicidal coercion. I'm not sure that's what this is. Like this girl, we've said this about a lot of other criminals. This girl was not a a criminal mastermind. This isn't something that she had plotted up in her bedroom, even with some of the attention that she wanted. This isn't the lengths that a well person goes to 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 get that attention. It I mean, feels like people are just searching desperately for someone to blame. You said this earlier, like they're just trying to prove that it wasn't them. It's not my fault. And the only way that I can make it not my fault is by blaming someone else instead of putting the responsibility where it firmly belongs in the hands of the person that committed the act. Like it just... 
this isn't like she held a gun to his head, literally, right? Like that, that is not what happened. This was not, if you don't do this, I'm going to decimate your entire family. This was not, I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to spread these rumors. I'm going to send photos and communicate. Like where was the coercion? Where was the holding someone's life hostage here? There wasn't any of that. Words are not violence. Like they're not. And I have lots to say. I've had lots of really nasty things said to me about me and about and to and about other people that I love. I don't like them, but it's not the same thing as physically harming someone. And if we start getting into this place of where what we say can make you guilty of a physical act of violence, I don't know where you go from there because so much of what we say is up to interpretation and it it means that there has to be context there. So even if I did say the actual words, Carla, go kill yourself, I guess I just went and said that. But the context is... I'm saying that as part of a podcast on commentary on on this kind of case. Context matters. Right, and so two years. That context, thank you. The two years of context. You that's threw a part. out the context. Yeah, it doesn't make, and I mean, we. I know attention-seeking people, right? Yes. I've seen attention-seeking I've people. I've been the te- attention-seeking person, especially as a teenager. We all are. Yeah, I, you know, who have put themselves in positions where I'm like, this person is doing this for attention. The thing to me that goes back, like you said, is the context, is the fact that she is a very, you know, is she's, she's a really, sick girl. Yeah. She's really, she's she's got all the problems. And so that then complicates it. And does it excuse all of the behavior? No, but it definitely makes you understand that this is why her brain chose what she chose. And then I think you need to think about whether or not it holds her accountable for all of those things. So it's it's a complicated case. And I I was so interested in it as soon as I watched it because of my own reaction to it. I have children who I love. And like I said, I would fight to the ends of the world for them. But then to think about the other side of how toxic this friendship between them was it's really scary like it it scared me it worried me i thought both the documentary and the hulu show does a really good job so if you're looking to like deep dive into it and want to hear about more of it please go watch both of them and if you haven't watched the hbo documentary go watch that because just the way that it really lays it out and it's without the dramatization without the fictional pieces to it they do such a good job. It's probably one of my favorite crime documentaries that HBO has put out. All right, you guys, that is the end of the story of Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter. So let us know what you think. Do you think that Michelle should have, in fact, been held guilty for her actions? Do words matter that much? Let us know and don't forget to hit us up on our socials. That's right. We're giving you unsolicited permission to slide right into those DMs. Of course, hit us up on those socials at NoCBs. You can email us at the, oh, I got to do it, N-O-S-E-Y-B-E-E-S, the number four, L-I-F-E, at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for future cases, we'll give you a shout out on the recording. So until next week, bitches, bye. Bye. You made it to the end of the podcast. 
Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind, stay curious, but of course, stay nosy, bitches. bitches.